Well, hey, this morning we are going to jump into the letter to the Philippians, all right? The epistle written by Paul to the Philippian church. So if you haven't found it yet, go ahead and start turning there. This is where we're going to sit for the next four weeks. Uh, Philippians is made up of four different chapters, and each week we'll just marinate and soak in one chapter at a time. So Philippians chapter 1 is where we will begin. And maybe you're wondering to yourself, why in the world are we studying Philippians? Uh, If you know anything about where Paul is around this time when he is composing this epistle, you're probably aware that Paul is writing this from prison. He's writing this from behind bars. Now, he was wrongfully in prison. He wasn't imprisoned for any wrongdoing on his end, but because of his faithfulness to proclaim the gospel. And uh, the gospel work was really being shut down all around him. And so there was a church that he was uh, really instrumental in raising up, the church in Philippi. And while Paul was in prison, this church sent him a care package. This church sent him tangible tokens of the fact that they were remembering him, that they loved him. They loved him dearly. In fact, this church had a special place in Paul's heart, too. Maybe you caught it as Jade was reading our scripture reading. In verse 7, there's this phrase. He says, you are in my heart. Like, there's this special attachment. And apparently the Philippians, uh, they felt that as well. I mean, they had seen firsthand what Paul had gone through. In terms of sacrifice and suffering, like physically, he was beaten there in Philippi for the work of the gospel. And so Paul, I mean, he means everything to them because he was the instrument through which their lives were changed. The gospel came to them and they were set free. And so this is really what we're reading here in Philippians. It's actually a thank you note. It's a thank you note that Paul is writing, and and he is wanting them to let, or he's wanting them to know how much of an encouragement they are to him. And, you know, I don't know, uh, we don't have a whole lot of detail about the church there in Philippi. However, in the book of Acts, maybe you can turn there sometime later this afternoon, you can kind of see the different people that Paul was instrumental in bringing to the Lord there in Acts chapter 16. In Acts chapter 16, there's, there's a lady named Lydia. She was one of those God-fearers who was praying by the riverside because there, because there wasn't a synagogue there in Philippi. And she was one who was gathered there for prayer. Uh, she was committed to prayer. Her heart was wide open. In fact, Acts 16 says that the Lord opened her heart to receive the word. A really powerful picture of just sensitivity to the promptings of the Holy Spirit. And in fact, when she accepted the gospel, she immediately started exercising her spiritual gifts, her gift of hospitality. Uh, She invited Paul and Silas over and and wanted to host them. There's another story there in Acts 16 where there's a a girl. She is mentioned in Acts 16 as a certain slave girl who was possessed of demons. So again, it kind of gives you an idea of the kind of place Philippi was or, or wasn't, right? And this girl, she, you know, she really had no identity of her own And because of her demon possession, uh, she was taken advantage of. She was exploited. And it was only through the powerful name of Jesus that she found freedom. Man. In fact, it was because of that freedom that her slave owners lost their business. And their anger led to Paul's arrest. 
Paul's beating and eventual imprisonment. And it was there that Paul and Silas both, maybe you remember this story, while they're chained up, their voices are raising up in praise to God. You remember that story? Yeah? And then there's this earthquake that totally shakes the place open. The jailer, he runs out. He's, he's worried to death because he thinks that all his, his prisoners have run free. But then Paul and Silas stop him from killing himself. And the jailer says, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? Why is that? It's because all night long, he had discovered that it is possible, through the songs of Paul and Silas, it is possible to have freedom when we are bound. It is possible to look up when life is down. It is possible. And he says, how do I have that kind of salvation? How do I have that kind of freedom? And this is coming from a jailer. And Paul and Silas respond by saying, hey, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. You and your household. And that's, that's what the jailer does. Boy, so when, when Paul is writing this letter to the Philippian church, I mean, these are the kind of precious people that are coming to mind. These are the kinds of stories that he is recalling. And so really, he, he recognizes that, man, he's in prison writing this, but the people that he's writing to, they have their own prisons to deal with. They have their own shut doors to deal with, their own degree of persecution their own degree of external pressures and even internal conflicts that naturally stir up when life doesn't go according to plan A. Does anybody know what life is like when that happens? <laughs> and so maybe you're wondering, you know, what, what is Paul trying to do as he's writing this letter to them? Well, yes, he's thanking them. He's thanking them for the encouragement that he has received, but he wants to take the opportunity to encourage them also. He wants them to keep finding joy in the journey, no matter the twists, no matter the turns in that road. And if you're wondering, okay, well, that's nice for Paul to communicate that to them. Could it be that that's what God wants to communicate to us as well? Yeah. So as we go through this little letter, four chapters long, and maybe throughout the next few weeks, you want to just read the, the letter again and again on your own. Maybe just taking a chapter at a time or the whole letter at a time. But I tell you what, every one of us knows what it's like for life's journey to not go according to plan. Or am I the only one? Am I the only one? <laughs> yeah. We all know what it's like, right? For adversity to strike and for struggles to sap the joy right out of our hearts. But I believe God wants us, just like the Philippians, to discover a joy in our journey that withstands all of that. Yeah? Is it possible? I think so. I think so. He wants us to discover a joy in our journey that, that we can have that is enduring, that, that, that we can have no matter life's ups or downs. And so, Philippians chapter 1. Are you there? Yeah? All right. We're going to Philippians chapter 1, and what we're going to discover is that Paul is going to give us two springs of joy. Two joy springs, you can say. And I'll just give it to you right off. It's prayer and progress. Prayer and progress. All right. So the first one, joyful prayer, he gets right to it right off the bat. I'm going to start in verse three. You know, after the first couple of verses, Paul kind of introduces himself 
addresses kind of in his natural letter writing introduction. And then in verse 3, it starts out like this. I thank my God upon every remembrance of you. Always, in every what? In every prayer of mine, making request for you all with joy. This is Paul's start. He starts off with just how much he has been praying and thanking God for this church. And that's, uh, that's beautiful to me. While Paul is in prison, he doesn't indulge in self-pity. He invests himself in prayer. When Paul is in prison and he's praying, what is he praying about or who is he praying about? Apparently he's not praying for himself, at least right away. It doesn't seem like that's what's consuming his heart and mind. He's not praying about his own comfort. He's not praying about his own release or relief. He is praying about other people. That's what he says, right? In verse 4, always in every prayer of mine, making request for you all with joy. And I would say it's that kind of other-centered intercession that he prays with joy, all right? So if we're talking about joy springs, this is joy spring number one, joyful prayer. And I wonder today, has, has prayer, um, I don't know, maybe you've had seasons in your life where prayer has become uh, just a panic button? Anybody ever been there? Where prayer has just been, you know, uh, some have um, summarized three kind of categories of prayer. <laughs> Uh, it's a, some are wow prayers, some are thank you prayers, and some are just help me Lord prayers, right? And sometimes we get in those seasons where it's just those help me Lord desperation cries for help. And don't get me wrong, I, I truly believe God hears our cries for help, especially in those seasons where that's really what consumes our attention. His ear is open to all of our anxieties, to all of our cares. Yes, praise him for that. But I would submit that when we engage prayer only as a help me prayer, when we engage prayer only as a panic button or a last ditch cry of desperation, I think we miss out. I think we miss out on prayer being a continual spring of joy. All right. So I want to share just three, just from Paul's prayer life here that we see an exposure to, um, three ways that prayer becomes joyful. A joy spring, okay? The first one is that joyful prayer is thankful, all right? Joyful prayer is thankful. In other words, it's full of thanks. It's full of thanks. For Paul, prayer was conversation with God where he could express thanks, where he could express gratitude, not pretending that the trials and troubles didn't exist, no, but because of his commitment to giving God thanks, he was able to see God's grace even in those trials, even in those adversities. And he was choosing to let the blessings rather than the burdens of those things consume his focus. All right, so joyful prayer is thankful, yeah. The second thing is that joyful prayer is thoughtful. Joyful prayer is thoughtful. And what I mean by thoughtful, I'm using that to describe being considerate. It's thoughtful of other people. All right, so his joyful prayer, yes, it was thankful. He says, thanks, I thank my God upon every remembrance of you. So he's thinking about other people here. In other words, when we're praying and we want prayer to be more than just hitting the, the red button, hitting the panic button, um, 
Joyful prayer starts with thanks, but it also focuses not just on my needs, but the needs of other people. Right? In fact, when Jesus taught us to pray, what is that prayer that Jesus taught us to pray? He says, Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Right? Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And then what's that next part? Give me this day my daily bread. How does that go? Have you noticed that before? It's first person plural. In other words, I'm not the only one with needs. That when I pray, let's pray for us. We're all in this together, right? And that's Paul's discipline there. That's why he, you know, he, he's lifting up not just his own needs, but he's thoughtful, pleading the case of others around him. The other factor of joyful prayer is not just that it's thankful and thoughtful, but joyful prayer is also faithful. <laughs> full of faith. Full of confidence that when I plead the needs of others, I'm confident that God is going to provide just what's needed in just the right time. Yeah. Notice in verse 6, it says this, being confident of this very thing, that he who has begun a good work in you just might complete it. <laughs> no, it's very absolute. He who has begun a work in you will complete it until the day of Jesus Christ. I love that. God doesn't want us to be doubtful and hopeless when we're pleading our needs or the needs of others. No, he, he wants us to be certain. He wants us to be fully assured that what he starts, he will also finish. That's my God. And the, so these are the necessary ingredients of joyful prayer, if you will, right? A joyful prayer is thankful, it's thoughtful, it's faithful. Joyful prayer looks behind at what God has done. It looks around at those that God has put in my sphere. And it looks ahead at what God will accomplish when we trust in him. Yeah, that's joyful prayer. Now, before we go on to the second joy spring of progress, I just kind of want to pause for a little bit of a sidebar, because this idea of just being thankful, as I was preparing this message, I was like, man, I am so thankful for this church. And I just want to say that. And I'll, I'll say it for a long time here, just for the next three minutes, okay? <laughs> you know, coming off of the, the bodybuilding series that we just finished, and then the spiritual gifts workshop, and then the ministry sphere that we had right after worship last Sabbath, and I was pumped, you know, just reading through the, the gift portraits that you shared. Some of you uh, were able to turn those in. and The ministry interest cards and stuff. I, I was just blown away. Like, God has really gifted the body of Christ. Yes, locally. Yes, globally. But I am just particularly thankful for that. So I want to say that. I want to express my gratitude that he has led our paths to be here. And I, I want to acknowledge and affirm your role in the body of Christ to let you know that that is not unnoticed, but also it's to ultimately give glory to God because he's the one that's doing it, okay? So whether you are an administrator or a board member, whether you are a church officer, an elder, a deacon, deaconess, or maybe you're a ministry or committee leader or those who serve on those ministries and committees, whether you give your time and energy on a weekly basis like our worship producers, our musicians, our Sabbath school teachers, our media and sound team, our bulletin team, 
or whether you give your effort and service on a daily basis, like our school staff. <laughs> that's, that's a daily basis. <laughs> our school volunteers, um, our, our, whatever the case might be, maybe you are giving and serving in ways that aren't seen, but they are definitely felt, like our facilities teams, are, are those who invest their energy and their back in landscaping and cleaning. Or maybe you move the gospel forward, not necessarily through church-sponsored programs, but through individual effort. Whatever the case, whether through Bible studies, through personal uh, ministries, through your consistent witness in your lives, I want to thank my God upon every remembrance of you. And I don't want that just to be an exaggerated Hallmark card. I just want to say thank you. Thank you. And the reality is you have been leading and serving and volunteering in very strange times. <laughs> serving through transitions isn't easy. It's not always enjoyable. So the transitions of, you know, I'm talking about transitions of coming out of COVID and trying to live a normal life again. Or the transitions of getting used to a pastor in his first year. <laughs> or, you know, whatever the case, there have, I'm sure there have been frustrations but you have been flexible and you have been faithful. So I thank my God upon every remembrance of you. Thank you for living out our vision. You know, I don't know uh, if you've taken note of the vision statement that's up here, to love the Lord our God with all, all our heart, soul, and mind and to share his love for the salvation of everyone before his soon return. Thank you for the ways that you have lived out this vision. That your service and your ministry and your volunteerism and your willingness to give and give and give again, it's been a way through which God's love has been shared with everyone around us. Your ministry and your service has had kingdom impact. And if you're getting tired of me saying thank you, don't worry. I've got about 45 more seconds of this. <laughs> Here's what I want to do, if you'll indulge me. I want to invite... Um, our administrators, our church board members, just to stand right now. And I want to appreciate you. If you're a church board member, administrator, please stand. Yeah? Go ahead. You can do it. Amen. Awesome. Awesome. Right on. No, no, stay standing. Stay standing. Because if you are an elder deacon or deaconess, I would also like you to stand and appreciate you. Amen. Amen. All right. Now, if you would, please stay standing. I want to also invite um, school staff, school volunteers. Um, please, please stand. Board members, school board members as well. Yes, awesome. Yeah, school mentors, right on. If you are a Sabbath school teacher, I would like you to stand as well. Yeah, okay. Maybe, yes, yes, keep standing, okay. Those who serve on a ministry or a committee of our church, please, please stand so we can affirm and appreciate you too. Yeah, that's right. That's right. Okay. How about those who have, um, you've volunteered, you've given help at one of our church programs, one of our events, hosted a Bible study, led a Bible study or a fellowship meal, even hosted a fellowship meal in your home, Please stand. 
Now, I'm seeing people who are sitting that have been serving. And I, my goal was to, <laughs> if you've been serving, I want you to stand. So I'll just say that. If you've been serving, giving of your time and energy and effort in ways that we haven't seen or acknowledged in a formal ministry, would you please stand? Amen. Amen. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Praise Jesus. I want to thank you. Thank you. Your effort and your energy makes eternal impact. So thank you. Okay, you can be seated. <laughs> so if I were to get back to this message then, when Paul is praying joyfully like this, what he prays in verses 9, 10, and 11, that's what I want to pray, especially for those who give of themselves. So let me just read that prayer. He says this in, in Philippians chapter 1, verses 9, 10, 11. He says, And this I pray, that your love may abound still more and more in knowledge and all discernment. In other words, in other words not just loving any and everything, but loving the things that God loves, right? Loving with his eyes, loving with his values, and then in verse 10, that you may approve the things that are excellent, that you may be sincere and without offense till the day of Christ, being filled with the fruits of righteousness, which are by Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. What a prayer. Man, if you're looking for things to, to pray, I mean, you have this burden for your kids. You have this burden for your neighbors. You have burden for those that are at your, at your work or in your classroom. Man, go to Paul's epistles and find the little nuggets of prayer that he prays for the believers. Pray that our love would abound more and more. Pray that we would love the things that God loves. Pray that we would be filled with fruits of righteousness. Not that we work, but that are by Jesus Christ not for our glory, but for God's praise and glory. Wow, that, that's a prayer. That's a prayer. And so I want to pray that, especially for those who have served, but for our entire church and for our community too. That neighbors right around here, that their love would abound. Not just for loving tacos or loving sports, but, but for loving Jesus. For loving eternal things. That they would live the life that God has called us to live. All right. So that's joy spring number one, prayer. Prayer that's thankful, prayer that's thoughtful, prayer that's faithful. The second joy spring, we'll find it in verse 12, and that's progress. Notice in verse 12, it says, But I want you to know, brethren, that the things which happened to me have actually turned out for the furtherance of the gospel. Maybe your version says, for the progress of the gospel. And this is a joy spring for Paul, a sense that things are moving forward, a sense that things are being accomplished, that there's momentum. And it's natural, right? It's natural for us to feel good when things are building. It's natural for us to feel good when things are developing or moving in the right trajectory, when we see that things aren't stalled or stagnant, but that there's a sense of real, tangible progress. But the progress that Paul has in mind is unique in two different ways, okay? It's a unique type of progress. Well, it's, it's progress that brings about full joy, but it's unique because it has a unique goal. All right? This is the first reason why Paul's sense of progress is different and distinct. It has a unique goal. And what specifically is that goal? Let's just start reading again, starting at verse 12, all the way to 18. It says, But I want you to know, brethren, 
that, things which, that the things which have happened to me actually turned out for the furtherance of what? Of the gospel. In other words, the goal of this progress, what he really wants to develop, is not his, his release from prison, although that would probably be nice and preferred, but he sees progress of the gospel of God's message being declared, of lives being changed. Let's keep going. So that it has become evident to the whole palace guard and to all the rest that my chains are in Christ. In other words, he's innocent, and what he's imprisoned for is for Jesus Christ. And apparently everybody, even around his jail, even the whole palace guard has recognized that. Verse 14. And most of the brethren in the Lord, having become more confident by my chains, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. I mean, this is kind of counterintuitive. You would think that when people see Paul imprisoned for preaching the gospel, that they would become timid about preaching the gospel. But apparently, according to verse 14, he sees that most of the brethren are actually becoming more bold in it. That somehow this is what the devil meant for harm God is actually using for good. Verse 15, some indeed preach Christ even from envy and strife, and some also from goodwill. Well, this is kind of strange. So yes, Jesus' message is being preached, some from bad motivations, some from good motivations. But is Paul complaining about this? Verse 16, the former preached Christ from selfish ambition, not sincerely, supposing to add affliction to my chains. Like trying to kind of, you know, poke and jab at Paul. But, but Paul's not complaining. But the latter out of love, knowing that I am appointed for the defense of the gospel. Verse 18. What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is preached. And in this, I do what? Rejoice. Rejoice meaning, I'm joyful. Okay? He's joyful. Whether or not people are preaching from good motives or bad. I don't know. I don't know if I could really resonate with that. Hey, 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 what are you trying to... No. Apparently, what matters to Paul is that Christ is preached. He doesn't care about how. He just wants the bottom line that Christ is preached. In other words, Paul's heart is so captivated by what Jesus has done... And what Jesus is doing for him, that as long as he is preached, then he can rejoice. It's progress of the gospel that stirs Paul to rejoice, even if the circumstances, even if the motivations are not ideal. So, again, question, where, where is Paul's focus in the midst of his imprisonment, in the midst of his adversity, in the midst of people trying to do things that are supposed to jab and poke at him, others trying to shame and hurt him? Where is his focus? It's not on himself it's on Jesus and Jesus being magnified Paul's heart is so fixed on the cross that if Christ is preached he could care less about the circumstances that if Christ is preached he could care less about the discomfort about the imprisonment and, and his sense of no progress he still sees progress on the eternal scheme if Christ is preached, I will rejoice. <laughs> in this, I rejoice. Where is that? Verse 18. In this, I rejoice. Yes, and will rejoice. <sighs> Can we say the same? <laughs> Can we say the same? 
I mean, to Paul, Jesus truly is everything. I mean, he says it later on in verse 21. He says, for to me, to live is Christ, to die is gain. In other words, to die, it would still result in Christ being preached. If I were a martyr, it would still result in Christ being preached. To me, to, to him, Paul was everything. And I wonder, is Jesus... I'm sorry, did I say that wrong? To him, Jesus was everything. <laughs> and it makes me wonder if the same is true for me. Is Jesus everything to me? I would submit that if Jesus is everything, then everything else becomes nothing. Everything else regarding the negative circumstances, everything else regarding the adversity, the trials, the, the struggles, the sorrows. Yeah, it, sure, I mean, it, it, it does have a weight. It is a burden. Well, let's not pretend that they do not exist. However, if Christ is everything, those don't have to be everything. Yeah? I want us to, to see the difference. We're talking about joy springs. It is possible for things to be going so wrong in our lives that we do not have happiness, right? But I would submit that even then, we can still have joy. You know, the church I grew up in, I'm so thankful for the, the individuals that God led into my path at a young age. One of the pastors I had, um, uh, one of the sermons I remember that, that I actually took notes on, <laughs> uh, that didn't happen uh, early on, but I, I do remember eventually getting to this point where I was listening to sermons, and they were actually sticking. And uh, one of the sermons he preached, he made this distinction. He said, there's a difference between happiness and joy. Do you know what that difference is? Yeah. You see, happiness, he said, is based on happenings. And joy is found in Jesus. You see, when things happen or don't happen, it makes us either happy or unhappy. But if Jesus is constant, guess what that means for joy? that our joy can be constant too. Joy that's based on Jesus is, joy, is, is, is found when Jesus is everything to us. But if, if, if certain things don't happen to make us happy, then we can still experience joy knowing that Jesus is bigger, knowing that Jesus is uh, beyond all of those happenings and he can still be glorified through it all. Somehow, some way, and this, I think, is the attitude that Paul brings to this, which is why uh, later on, down in verse 25, notice this. The way that he talks about joy, he says it's a joy of faith. Verse 25 says, being confident of this, I know that I shall remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy of faith. That your rejoicing for me may be more abundant in Jesus Christ by my coming to you again. In other words, his rejoicing is abundant in Christ, not in happenings, right? His joy is a joy of faith, not of feelings. Do you follow me today, yes or no? Friends, you may not necessarily be happy, but we can find joy in Jesus. When we truly trust that he is causing all things to work together for our good. When we truly trust that, that we can be confident that, hey, he started something. He's not going to leave me hanging. He's going to finish it all the way. Yeah. So progress, progress in Paul's mind, 
yes, it has this unique goal, but I'll also add to this that it has a unique path. That when Paul sees progress, it goes through a route that we wouldn't naturally choose for ourselves. <laughs> Maybe you've already picked up on that. Right? In verse 19, this is really interesting. In verse 19, he says, For I know that this will turn out, you know, all this stuff that's going on, people preaching Christ for, for ill will or for goodwill. For I know that this will turn out for my deliverance through your prayer and the supply of the Spirit of Jesus Christ. Paul has this, this, uh, this enduring sense. Hey, things are going to work out. Things are going to turn out. Do you notice that phrase? It'll turn out for my deliverance. In fact, that word turn out, it's, uh, it's used in, in other uh, places in, in the New Testament where it's talking about the disciples bringing their boats to land and getting out of the boat. So the idea behind turning out, it literally means to get out of a boat after a journey, after completing a fishing trip. In other words, Paul, wherever he is in the stormy sea, he sees land in sight. He knows he's going to get out. Does that make sense? Yes or no? Yeah? Things will turn out. I will get back to land. Well, what kind of land is he looking for? Well, he says, this will all turn out for my deliverance, yes, but also for the furtherance of the gospel, right? We read that earlier in verse 12. Hey, uh, I want you to know, brethren, that the things which happened to me have actually turned out for the furtherance of the gospel. Things are going to land. Things are going to get there. Progress is going to be made, yes, in terms of the gospel, but also progress in terms of your own individual experience, in terms of your own individual growth. Uh, it's down in verse 25. Notice what progress he's looking at. And being confident of this, I know that I shall remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy of faith. So he's talking about progress of the gospel, but also progress of the believers themselves getting to the land, getting to the destiny that God has in store for them. Whether or not he's present to help them, whether or not he's in prison the entire time, everything's going to work out. That ship is going to dock, and you're going to come out on the other side. <laughs> and what's cool about that idea of progress, the word for furtherance in verse 12, furtherance of the gospel, and then progress, your progress in verse 25 that particular word, it's, uh, it's made up of, of two different words. It's pro and cope. Pro meaning things that are in front of, and cope meaning cutting or chopping. In other words, when Paul talks about progress, he's talking about the kind of advancement that comes when you chop your way through the jungle. <laughs> no matter the impediment, no matter the, the obstacle, it will chop down whatever's in its path. So in Paul's mind, I would submit to you that progress isn't about the absence of obstacles, but the overcoming of them. <laughs> when Paul sees problems, he sees that as potential for chopping. <laughs> when Paul sees problems, he sees that as potential for progress. Uh, so, again, like it, we were t saying earlier, it's very, very counterintuitive. It's not naturally the way that we think, but it is the way that the Bible writers think. Notice what James says about trials. When you start seeing obstacles in, his, in your way, notice this, James chapter 1, verses 2 through 4. My brethren, count it all what? Joy when you fall into various trials. 
Why? <laughs> Knowing that the testing of your faith produces patience, but let patience have its perfect work, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. A lot of times we, we run into trials or trials run into us and we think, man, things are being taken from us. Think are, things are being robbed of us. But I tell you what, in the grand scheme of things, God is actually giving to us through those trials. It's easier said than done, right? You may not appreciate that in the real time of that experience, in the real time of that trauma, but God, through his redemptive grace, can turn whatever disappointment and defeat into victory and triumph. Do you believe that today, yes or no? Yeah. And because of that, we can count it all joy. We can count it all joy. Does that mean that we're happy through it all? No. But we can count it Consider it, reckon it to be joy because of Jesus. That's faith. That's overcoming faith. And that's progress, procope progress, right? That's the, that's the joy of faith that Paul is talking about in, in verse 25, the joy of faith. And it's this kind of joy in Jesus that doesn't wilt when there are obstacles or adverse circumstances. But this joy in Jesus sees obstacles as opportunities. It sees them as opportunities for progress of chopping down advancement. And so as we bring chapter 1 to a close, I think the question that, that really stands out to me as I'm reading this is, who is Jesus to me today? Who is Jesus to me? Who is Jesus to you today? I want to invite you. To look to Jesus as the one who has started a good work and will be faithful to complete it. Yeah. And when we look to him as that, that one who doesn't, who doesn't just leave projects hanging, as we look to him as the one who actually completes everything that he begins, then we'll find joy in our prayer life. We'll, we'll, we'll be able to be thankful. We'll be able to be thoughtful and we'll be able to be full of faith as well in our prayers. We'll, we'll, we'll experience less of rehearsing of anxieties over and over and more of acknowledgement of God's promises and his providence. How many of you want to look to Jesus today as the one who finishes what he starts? Yeah? Amen. Second invitation would be this, to look to Jesus as everything to you. So that when Jesus is everything, Everything else that may be negative or positive is really nothing. In the grand scheme of things, if Jesus is everything, if my life, if my affection, if my significance, if my ambition is wrapped up in him and his glory, then everything else falls to the wayside. Because Christ is enough, right? I don't need this blessing to make my life complete. I just need Jesus. I don't need this to go away, this thorn to be removed in, in order for my life to be complete. I just need Jesus. When Jesus is everything, everything else will be nothing. How many of you want to look to Jesus as everything? Yeah? Amen. Amen. I'm going to uh, offer a word of prayer, and then our song team will lead us in a beautiful song of a confession of faith. So let's, let's bow our heads for prayer today. God, we thank you so much.
that you have given us every reason to trust you. And Lord, we want to pray for redemption. <laughs> we want to pray for forgiveness from our tendency to walk outside of that trust in you. And so today, we choose. We choose to look to you as the one who finishes what you start. We choose to look to you as the one who really is everything to us. So bring our hearts there, God. That's our choice. Would you please convert our hearts to look to you in that way, to live as though you are faithful to complete what you begin, to live as though you are truly everything to us today. May we walk by faith because Christ truly is enough. In Jesus' saving name, let the family say, Amen. Amen.